So, turn your Bibles to John chapter 9. If you are visiting with us, we've been going through an exposition of John over the last, well, since last year. So, (laughs) we're slowly making our way through it. John 9 is... um, It's an interesting story. The whole chapter is one story, but we're going to break it up into two weeks just because of so much that we need to cover. And for those of you that are visiting, and just remind us, there's there's a little bit of a background to John, especially John 9's purpose and what John is trying to accomplish here with Jesus in John chapter 9. As creatures by nature, we are self-sufficient We often only trust in what we can see or what we can control. We are careful on what we depend on. We don't just depend on anything. We are survivors by nature. In most cases, if we cannot understand it, we don't depend on it. It's not something we want to put our trust in. What we can see and understand in our own abilities is what we want to put our dependence in. And that's because we can understand our own capacities and we understand our own character. We know what we will do, what we will and will not do to ourselves and how much we can provide for ourselves. So dependence we place really is in our own control. And here is the the shadow behind our life. Here is the misconception about our life is that we assume we're in control of our lives. We at least have say in what will happen to us is what we feel. If something bad happens to us and it's our fault, we're just simply going to try harder next time so it doesn't happen to us again. And herein lies the problem with humanity in its relationship to God. The number one problem, self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. Our overconfidence in self blinds us to our human frailty and depravity. We see our capacity to perform and provide and never truly see our need to depend on anyone else. So self-righteousness builds up, causing us to even be more blind and deaf to our need. And the conclusion that's maybe overstated or understated, I should say, is, quote, why do I need help from a God when I can help myself? Now, of course, no one would really necessarily say that, but that is the way in which our life is reflected. You know, God gave humanity a perfect picture in its own self-sufficiency in two-year-olds. If you've ever been around a two-year-old, what do they want to do? They want to demonstrate their own self-sufficiency. I can do this. Let me do that. I don't need your help feeding me. I don't need your help dressing me. And then they turn 16 and they lose all self-dependency. It's like they need everything from you now, right? Cell phones and money. Spiritually speaking, we too are just like a two-year-old in the eyes of God. We are blind to our own condition. We think in our own eyes we have all that is needed to make not only ourselves provide for ourselves here, but to provide for a relationship with God. And as long as I'm a good person, do more good deeds than bad, attend church, try to do my best, God will be happy with me and be pleased with me. That's by nature what we conclude. But there it is again. We are not depending on the goodness of God, but on the performance before him. So our dependence, even though we may state it's from God, it's not. So as John says, we walk in blindness. We have no idea just how trapped and enslaved we truly are. We live in spiritual darkness 
and were imprisoned by it. This is why I read to us Isaiah 42, 6 and 7 this morning in our scripture reading. God, in prophesying through Isaiah, speaking of Jesus, says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from their dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And the Old Testament is filled with this promise. The Messiah, the coming prophet, the king of kings, is coming to give sight to the blind and to set the prisoners free and to establish a safe and sinless kingdom forever. Now we, as we've said for many months now, we don't necessarily always view the Old Testament that way, but that is the story of the Old Testament. It's one long unfolding story of how humanity is absolutely incapable of saving themselves. They have no reason to depend upon themselves for righteousness. So as Israel fails and as humanity fails, God puts before them prophets who say, there is one coming to whom you can depend on. There is one coming who will give sight to the blind, who will set the captives free. And if you've ever read all of the Old Testament, you do walk away with this taste in your mouth of wanting more like, well, that didn't work out well. My children and I recently watched uh, Infinity Wars, Avengers Infinity Wars, and if you haven't seen it, I won't ruin it for you. Other than, you leave going, well, that's not good. And in your mind, you're wondering, how are they going to fix all of this? Uh, it's, it's a total mess. And of course, there's all these theories and everything that's going on. Trust me, it's still a good movie. I didn't ruin it for you. But that's that feeling that you have. And, and at the end of the Old Testament, you, you just kind of walk away going, this is a mess. Like, the promises that Israel made to God and the blessings that God promised to Israel, of course, Israel couldn't keep their covenant, the Mosaic law, Levitical law. So now they find themselves completely entrapped once again where they were delivered out of Egypt. Now they find themselves enslaved once again to the Romans. So they've been defeated by their enemies and no longer are free people who are blessed by God and by the protection of God. So what hope do they have left? What is it that they look to? Well, for some, as we've seen so far in eight chapters in John, some are depending upon the law of Moses to bring God's protection back to the people. And even though this has only failed them in the past for thousands of years, but that's where they're placing their hope. So Jesus is fighting against those who are constantly pressing the law up to Jesus, saying, no, it's the law that brings us protection. It's the law that brings us righteousness before God. And then there's a second group is not placing their dependence on their performance of the law, but on the Messiah who will rescue them from their slavery, as mentioned in Isaiah 42. Those who understood that there is coming a king who will earn for them the righteousness needed. And that is the backdrop of John 9. You have this scenario of an entire Old Testament, a story that says no one can earn the favor and the righteousness of God When you attempt to perfectly obey the law, it only proves that you are a slave to sin. And you are doomed because of it. So for nine chapters, the disciple John has been walking walking his readers through the life of Jesus, leading us to one ultimate conclusion. 
dependence can safely be put upon Jesus as your Savior. That's the conclusion of John 1 through 8. You can put your faith in Jesus. He is alone the solution to your spiritual blindness. And he is the only one who can give you sight, who can bring you from death to life. The conclusion in five different miracles, in seven different conversations, very intense conversations, is that no one can save themselves. No one can. It's a gift from the Father we must depend upon fully. And the second message that John brings within this narrative, all the stories of Jesus, is that humanity is blind to this need of the Messiah. Completely blind. And we see in this in John 6, verse 66, that these people who were actually the disciples of Jesus being trained by him were following Jesus for the wrong reasons. They too in front of the Messiah, were still blind. Why? Because they all walked away. When Jesus finally spreads the light and says, this is the way of salvation and and opposes the Mosaic law, they all leave him. They say, that's not what we want. So what happens after John 6? Well, things turn a little um, dangerous for Jesus. In John 7, they try to arrest him which is a funny story. They come to arrest him and then they just pause and they don't arrest him and they don't know why they can't arrest him, but they just can't. And then in John 8, they try and stone him, which they don't. But they did not see their need to depend upon the Son of Man for this. They had themselves in the law of Moses to accomplish the task. So it's Jesus against their dependence. Jesus is saying, you have nothing to do except for Depend upon me. And that is offensive to them. Well, of course, this is what John tells us. I'm sorry, what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, that the gospel is foolish to those who are perishing. And of course, this is how they see Jesus. So this is where the backdrop is. This is where it leads us to the story of John 9. So for eight chapters, Jesus has been trying to prove, and he's going to do his final miracle, the sixth and final miracle in John chapter six, in John's gospel. And that's where we are. So let's read in verse 1. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now knowing what Isaiah says in chapter 42... This helps us understand Jesus' response, which is a very strange response. That God would have a man born blind for the pure uh, purpose of healing him. But it was prophesied that Jesus would come and give sight to the blind, proving what? That he truly is the Messiah, the one promised by God. You know, there's a lot of, in history, there was a lot of men who came prophesying that they were the true Messiah. And even after Jesus, this was the case. But the prophets, by God's design, made sure there were specific signs that only Jesus could fulfill, and this is one of them. Now, of course, Jesus knows the words of Isaiah. So he's encountering this situation, and knowing that it's prophesied of him up to this point, someone being brought to light or giving sight, this is not a miracle he has performed yet. 
So in the process of this, of this event, Jesus clears a very important confusion with his disciples. One, that it is, I am the Messiah for those who are surrounding him. But he does answer a theological question that had been plaguing Jews for a long time. Because they asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now there's a couple of uh, explanations for why they would ask this question. And then it helps us understand why Jesus answers it. During this time, uh, there was teaching of some Jewish rabbis that there was this belief that uh, spirits would pass from one body to the next. So if in one life and in one body you performed sinful acts, then that would be carried over. Your punishment would be carried over in the next. So you would be congenitally born with something wrong with you, blindness, lame, deaf, dumb. So that's one explanation. It was a false teaching, and this shows up in some of the rabbinic teachings during that time. And then the, uh, the second idea was that sin was passed down because of the parents' sin. So they, this is why they ask, is it this man, there's this weird teaching Jesus, what do you think about this teaching? And then there's the teaching of the law, which says that sin would be passed down. For instance, Exodus 34, 7 says, but who will, be, who will by no means, God, Clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So it's clear the disciples have been under such teaching that they wanted to know what Jesus' thoughts were here. Is this, uh, their parents did something wrong and now their child is born this way? Well, let's read Jesus' response again. It was not that this man sinned or his parents that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus here doesn't deny that sin causes suffering. He is stating that it is not in this case and in this situation. And in turn, really telling them to be careful not to quickly judge, assuming that just because someone has a problem, that it's the result of sin. To assume someone was born with a congenital problem as the result of of a sinful action is dangerous. This is the situation that Job found himself in, right? They kept coming to Job and saying, Job... To have this much calamity in your life, you had to have made God angry. What did you do? And of course, we know that it is not because of Job's sinfulness. And in the very same case where this man was born blind, Job was underneath this persecution so that God's glory would ultimately be revealed. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he does encounter a lot of suffering. He encounters... Uh, people who have been suffering and this question of sin and as it relates to sin. So for instance, uh, the, uh, the pool of Bethesda where the man, he heals the man that's lame, we are told that is because of his sin. Because what does Jesus tell him? Go sin no more after he heals them. So somehow it was related to it. But the Bible deals with suffering in three ways. Let me just run through these real quick because it does help us understand the context of what Jesus is doing here. First of all, the result of the fall of Adam. So the whole earth is cursed. This is where I think sickness and death and pain and disease and and cancer comes from. It is an earth that is cursed by sin. So there are many in this room who will suffer or have suffered some kind of the result of the fall. Any type of frailty in your body is the result of humanity that was created perfect but no longer is perfect. So there's, you can't say that as the result of your sin. It's just the result of sin that was passed to us from Adam. The second one is the result of our own sin. There is clearly 
suffering that happens because of our own sin. Peter even warns us, look, look you're going to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Don't add to that suffering because of your own sin. First Peter 4.15 says, But none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a, or as a meddler. So these sins can cause suffering as a result of your sin. Now, there's an example of this even in um, the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to the leaders of the church and they suffered for it. And then there's a third suffering, which is used a lot in the Bible, which is for our own spiritual growth. And this is a tough one, and this one gets confused often. But in that same chapter in Peter, he says, verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So there's a side of it that the suffering of God that is brought upon us is not, we can see it's clearly not because of something that we have done, but it's definitely something we are going through. And it is by God's grace that we entrust ourselves to this faithful creator. Paul talks about this in his own pain. In 2 Corinthians, he says, uh, this is Jesus speaking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What is Paul saying? Suffering causes me to depend upon what? The grace of God. He even goes on to see how he says how it keeps him humble. And this is even why James, which has always been confusing to me, but now it makes sense because if my life is a dependence upon the grace of God and the strength of God to carry me through this life, James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you, might, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So suffering, the danger that the disciples were presenting here is that suffering is equated to sin. That's not necessarily the case. And Jesus sets this straight. Suffering is not always connected to the result of someone's sin. Of course, there's sin in the world. But what Jesus is saying is that there is suffering that is used for the glory of God. And we as believers that can look in our life and say, yeah, there are times of trial and suffering. And if you can honestly pray before God and say, Lord, I don't see anything as Job did in my life that's causing this. There's a moment where there is great comfort. This is why James says, count it joy. Because God's bringing pressure into your life that's going to force you to depend upon him even more than you are now. Only Christians can count suffering to be something that's joyful. I know that there's the popular song, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, but that never really brings any relief eternally. Only that you are what? causing yourself to depend upon your embitterment through the trial. What's interesting about Christian suffering, you are not called to depend upon yourself in the suffering. What does Paul say? It's God's grace that brings us through. So what suffering reminds us is that in our salvation and in our preservation, we must depend upon God, which is the whole point in John 9. To sustain us in every area of life, we must depend upon God. There's a sad part of this, and uh, we've been doing, I guess, Theocast, a podcast now for almost two and a half years. And last year, we got an email from a young lady, and she was telling us that 
she was at a particular church that she had to leave. But the reason was is that her pastor sat down with her. And she was born with this chronic pain that she could not overcome. She had been to so many doctors and there was no possible healing for her. And it was causing some pretty massive depression. And the elders came to her and said, if you had enough faith, what do you think they're going to say? God would what? Heal you from this. And so her suffering was the result of a sin which was called the lack of faith. And all I had to reply to her was 2 Corinthians from Paul. I guess Paul couldn't convince Jesus he had enough faith either. So Jesus left him in his suffering. That is crazy. Your suffering that God introduces into your life is not there so all of a sudden you would have enough faith for God to take it away. The suffering, according to the word of God, is there so that the dependence will be upon him. Now, in God's sovereignty and in his plan of redemption, there are times where you will be healed. But that is not the promise, nor is that the plan. So back to our passage. Jesus reminds his disciples this time that there is a time coming, and this time that is coming is his death, where he will no longer be here, he will ascend. And there's much work that must be done for the Father to complete that has been given to him. Now, again, pointing back to Isaiah 42, the work that was been given to him to complete was to prove that he was the Messiah, to prove that he had the ability to save sinners and that he could be dependent upon. So look at verse 4, John 9, 4. We must work the work of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So this, these works are the fulfillment of the prophecy to prove that he is the Messiah. That he's talking about. The time is coming when the physical light, the real light, me, will be gone. So we have a limited amount of time before I am gone. So we must start proving that I am the Messiah. And he includes his apostles, his disciples in this. Soon I will die. This is the darkness that he's talking about. And go to the cross And set the captives free, which Isaiah says, from their prison of sin. So Jesus is about to perform a miracle. From And this miracle that he performs has never been seen in the history of man. As a matter of fact, the blind man says this himself. Let me get this straight. You're not going to accept this miracle, a miracle that's never been performed in the history of man. Someone born blind can now see, and you can't see that it's from God, which is exposing their blindness. Now, there's much wrapped up in this healing, everything that Jesus has been saying from chapters 8 up to chapters 8 is to bring to light this miracle that's about to happen. And Jesus has been exposing this, the whole world to their blindness. So I'm just going to run through you real quick so you understand the impact that John takes for an entire chapter to do one story. This is why. So in John 3, 3, John's dealing with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to him and says, I, okay, look, I think you're the Messiah, but I'm not quite sure that you are. What must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? So what does Jesus tell him? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus goes, uh, nobody can be born again. And Jesus stops him and says, you don't understand what I'm saying because you're blind to what I'm saying. This is the whole conversation. It's to prove that Nicodemus is blind. So how does Nicodemus go from blind to sight? Jesus tells him. 
In verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus is saying, what must I do, what work must I do so that I can be born again? And Jesus says, it is a work of the Spirit that you are born again. So that's the first part he says, you're blind, you don't see it, it's a work of God. Then we we, we move on to John chapter 6. Really heavy conversation in John 6, long. But in this conversation, Jesus keeps telling them, I, you must depend upon me. He uses illustrations of eating my flesh and drinking my blood. It's this idea that you are sustained before God, before me. And they don't get it. And not only that, they start getting angry. I'm saying, what are you teaching, cannibalism? So finally, Jesus tells them this. You're blind. You have not the capacity to see who I am. The only way you can see the way that I am Jesus, that I am the Messiah, that I am your salvation, in verse 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Of course, they still don't get it. So what happens in chapter 8? Jesus goes to the festival. And at the festival, he's this, uh, this, this um, Jewish ritual that Israel would celebrate Looking to God as their savior, Jesus stands up and says, I am that water that you trusted in in the exodus in the wilderness that came from the rock. That's me. And of course, again, they can't see it. So Jesus tells them, why do you not understand what I say? John 8, 43. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. It's offensive to them because they are blind. You are of the father, the devil, and your will is to do the father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. How does Jesus end up dying? Lies about him. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of a sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? This is why they don't believe him. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. As I said last week, that's like walking up to a Marine who has served in combat and said, well, you're not really a patriot. That's a danger zone right there, my friend. If you're looking for a black eye, you shall get one. Telling the religious community that knows the law very well, that serves the law, that is faithful in the temple, and God said, and Jesus says to them, you don't know God. Yahweh, the one you were claiming to serve, you do not know him, because if you did, you would know me. So one final miracle to not only prove that he is the Messiah to these people, but also to show them their own blindness. Jesus is not being despiteful here. He's not being mean. He's simply exposing just how blind they really are. God in the flesh stands before them and they hate him. That's how blind they are. So in the end, John is still saying, only those who depend upon Jesus can be accepted by the Father, yet you hate me. So this miracle is the final example from John. And let's read the miracle. Verse 6. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. Now, why did Jesus do this? There is a lot of speculation of why Jesus would spit on the ground. 
It has everything to do with uh, how offensive it was. There was bodily fluids. It's a Levitical law. It's an issue. Or men are from the dust. It was recreated. There's all these. And they're interesting, but it doesn't help us. What is it that Jesus has been saying for eight chapters? If you, if your eyes have been opened, you will see and believe and obey. So what does he tell the man who is lame at the pool? Would you like to be healed? And the man says, yes. He says, rise up and walk. Now, if this man did not believe he could be healed or was healed, he would not got up and walked. There's this idea, this constant conversation that's going on is that those who believe that I am, those whose eyes have been opened will follow me. What does John say in John 8? Jesus turns to those who believe and said, if you want to be my disciple, what does he say? Trust in my words. Trust in my words. And from that words that come, obedience comes from that. The confusion that happens in a lot of day and a lot of preaching is, obey so that you get salvation. And Jesus is saying, I save so that you can obey. We reverse it. We make the requirement that which is the gift. You cannot require obedience. It is a gift. So let's keep reading. Verse 7. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So the man could have just rubbed it off, called Jesus crazy for rubbing spit on his face. This man actually doesn't know who Jesus is. There has not been a conversation between Jesus and this man up to this point. Even after his healing, he's not quite sure who he is other than someone told him his name. Yet the power of God transformed this man, not only physically from blind to sight, but spiritually. Because later on we will see next week that this man believes that Jesus is the Messiah. So he is showing the contrast between the blind and those who have been given sight. This is why we bring people to Jesus by faith. We do not bring Jesus to people by obedience. If your message is repent and obey and do what is required so that God can save you, this is not the message of dependence upon Christ. This is a message of depend upon your obedience so that God would accept you. The whole message of Jesus Christ is depend upon me and my obedience and my sacrifice. And from there, your dependence upon me will bring you in right standing before the Father and free you so that you can obey. Now, there's a second reason Jesus used the mud, and it was to expose the self-righteousness of the Jews. Of course, Jesus loved doing this. What was Jesus accused of when he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda for doing what on the Sabbath? Work on the Sabbath. Well, if that didn't get him enough trouble, he decided to do it a second time. Just to expose how nitty-gritty crazy these Pharisees truly were. Look at verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he, he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. It's almost like, Why are you talking about me? I'm right here. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the Siloam and wash. 
So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Now it was, this, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. So the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Like they make the connection. There's no one who can give a man who's been born blind sight unless he's from God. That's impossible. And there was a division among them. Of course there's a division among them. Why? Because you have the sight fighting against the blind. You know why they were upset at Jesus? Because to knead or to mold or to move Something in a certain fashion, like if you were to knead bread. Am I saying that right? Knead bread? I have to ask the cook over here. So Jesus molded something with his hands in the dirt. Therefore, he broke the Sabbath. They are so blind and so dependent upon themselves and their own self-righteousness. The embodiment of God is before them. Creates a miracle that's been prophesied for thousands of years and they can't see it. I think point's been made. You do not come to Jesus because you see him by yourself. That would be a dependence upon yourself. Jesus exposes just how blind we are. Because we end up getting compared to. Go read Ephesians chapter 2. We who are dead in our trespasses and sins. By nature are the children of wrath. We do not go from blind to sight because of our own abilities. Therefore, we would depend upon our abilities. Now, next week, we will finish this story. It is is quite revealing just how blind humanity is. But we learn a lot about Christ in the end of this story. I didn't want to try and run through it quickly. But I do want to read to you Isaiah 53. Because I think it's revealing to show what Jesus is doing here. Isaiah 50, uh, sorry, sorry, Isaiah 35, 3, it says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Does this not sound like what is happening in John? There's an Old Testament book that has one story of redemption. Of how it is that we are in prison to sin. And in that story, there is one light that's constantly been presented to us. The one who sets captives free from the bondage of sin. And that is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He now opens our eyes to see we in faith believe that our salvation depends upon him. You know, it's hard for us who are dependent creatures upon our own performance and our own ability and our own capacity. To place all dependence on something outside of ourselves especially something we cannot see. Nothing we have done in the past and nothing we do in the future brings sight to our eyes. 
keeps the sight we have now and nothing we do in the future will cause us to lose our sight. This faith is sets, sets us free from this burden of sin. I know it's dangerous to say, John, that, wait a minute, your salvation is dependent upon God and not your performance. Then people will go and live however they want. Fascinating thing about that. Ezekiel and Jeremiah tells us that when he takes out the heart of stone, blind, dead, and puts in a heart of flesh, he says, I will cause you to walk in my ways. What are these people doing that come to Jesus? Thanks for the healing. Now it's time to go party. No. (laughs) That's not what you see. They've been freed from the prison of sin. And Paul says, why do you want to go back into it? May it never be. That's ridiculous. So you don't prevent, you don't fight sin in your life by pressing law back upon yourself. We depend upon Christ daily and weekly as a congregation so that our obedience comes from love and from within our faith as we depend upon our Savior. And for those of us, and I know many of you in here who are suffering, we have a hope that the suffering is not needless. It's for our good. Many in this room will die in pain. Not the pain of sin and necessarily where you ultimately end up in punishment. But you will die because of the frailty of our life. And it's in this we are called to place our hope that one day God will glorify our bodies. And in this he is strengthening our faith and strengthening our dependence. And there is sweeter joy and there is sweeter rest for those who depend upon Christ than in themselves. So look to your pain, not as a frustration of, why won't God heal me? But look at your pain and saying, God is drawing me near to himself. And that one day, we will no longer suffer, but live in freedom in the joy of his presence. You know, men, let's get ready for the table this morning. I've been saying this for weeks now. John does something for the believer that is so needed it is to rip from your hands any hope you could ever have that God would accept you on the merits of anything that you do. As a church, this is why we take the Lord's table every Sunday because it is the reality that without Christ and the sacrifice of Christ and depending upon the sacrifice of Christ, we would not be seen as righteous and acceptable in the eyes of God. We would have no value as it relates to eternity in the eyes of God. Our value rests in the work of Christ. It's hard for us to think that God does not look at us and see some form of value as it relates to righteousness, but he does not. No work you ever offer him is of value to him as it relates to your righteousness. And this is why we depend fully on the works of Jesus Christ performed here in the gospel so that we can see Jesus was required to perfectly obey the law. He was required to perfectly love the Father and required not to sin. And all three were completely accomplished by Jesus. And this is what God does. Jesus' righteousness by faith is yours as long as you depend upon him. Requirement is faith in Jesus.
What does that result for us? Rest. Amen. Father, we thank you that our eyes have been opened. And because our eyes have been opened, we can see the beauty of Jesus Christ. He is no longer one we despise, but one we rejoice in. Lord, we give you all glory so that no one may boast. In Jesus' name, amen. I do want to say for those of you that are visiting, if you're confused by the gospel, if you're not sure uh, what your standing is before God, we encourage you not to partake in this uh, wonderful sign that's been given to us. This does not bring salvation to you.